Thank you for listening to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. I want to make you aware of a cool new feature that I've added to the podcast website. It's a bookstore. In the bookstore, we sell the books of the authors that we interview, as well as many other valuable resources to help you in your faith journey. We've got items on historical issues within Mormonism that come from a faithful perspective, as well as books and materials to help you in a difficult faith transition. Please check out the website today, mormondiscussionpodcast.org, and click the link, Bookstore. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Usually in my episodes, I I try to, to lead with faith in each and every one of them. I try to ask the tough questions, but always try to find a way to to show both me and as well as you, the audience, how to make those things work. I uh, Today I'm going to talk probably on the other side of that line. Uh, I've had a bad day. In fact, I've had a really bad couple of weeks. And so I want to give you the option right now, if you're listening and it's really important to you that you always hear a positive message. Uh, you might just want to go ahead and click the stop button and, and go on to some other podcast or some other episode for the day. Because today I'm going to just be frank and honest and, and talk to you about some of the things I'm thinking about and struggling with. And I just want to give you the chance to kind of step away if this isn't going to be an episode for you. For those of you who are sticking around, thank you. It is it is tough to do things in a, a public arena like this, to every week get on the microphone and talk to people and share things that you're thinking about and, and questions that you have and interview people who can perhaps offer some way of answering those things. The trouble with leading with faith is that you really can never share your bad days. They almost have to stay hidden because if I'm if I'm talking out loud about my struggles then I, I run the risk of turning some of you off of the program. And yet if I'm going to be authentic, it's important for you to know that I have I have bad days. And like I said, it's been a bad couple of weeks. So let me uh, let me share with you some of the things I'm thinking about. And, and bear with me, I'm not trying to be a negative Nelly. I, I want to share this both here in this beginning as well as towards the end. But I've always been kind of split. Now you may, you may perceive listening to the podcast that I am always feeling faithful, always feeling hopeful, always being positive in terms of the church. But what you probably don't realize is, and I think many of you are this way too, it's, it's much more along a spectrum where there's parts of you on both sides of that line. What I mean by that is that 50% of me, I'm just, I'm just throwing out a number. I don't know what the, what the number is, but let's just say 50% of me is absolutely faithful, loves the church, wants to lead with faith, wants to have hope, wants to believe in the gospel, wants to believe in the church's narrative of how we got the church. But there's also 50% of me that struggles, that has doubts, that has a, a really hard time some days trying to put the pieces together. And to be honest, right, you go into your ward and nobody wants to hear that. You can't, you can't have these kinds of conversations. The kinds of conversations I have on this podcast, you can't have most of those in your ward. If, if I try to say, hey, there are problems in the historical narrative, nobody wants to hear that. Very quickly, people are turned off by that and they just head off a different direction. They, they don't want to have that conversation. Nobody wants to hear about problems. Everybody wants to hold on to this beautiful narrative. These beautiful assumptions and expectations they have that just fit so picture perfect. It just feels like the average member of the church wants to keep the rose colored glasses on. Because nobody wants to hear it, 
there's no one to talk to. Many of you experience this. You go into your wards on Sunday, you're hurting inside, you're struggling. All you want is that the idea behind what you're struggling about to be validated. To have somebody say, hey, look, I totally hear you. I totally understand what you're saying. I totally get the problems that you perceive. And those problems are real. Let's talk about it. Let me listen to you. But we don't get that. I have people in my ward who love me. I have leaders in my ward who love me. I have family in my ward who love me. But I don't have anybody who really, truly wants to listen and wants to talk about the things that I think about. That makes it tough. That makes it tough Sunday in and Sunday out. And so I find the only way I'm able to get anything off my chest is when somebody at church says something that's absolutely moronic and I simply raise my hand and step in and intervene and in a hopefully most of the time a kind way, but absolutely sometimes my frustration gets the best of me and I put the person in their place. I say, look, sorry, but what you just said is wrong. And that's not good either because then I just burn more bridges. Anyway, my point starting off here is that it's tough. And while I share with you some other thoughts today, I want to be clear that while I am I am absolutely 100% acknowledging that this episode is going to be negative, I want you to know that there's still half of me here that absolutely leads with faith, that has hope, that believes, that is going to be in this church, that's going to make it work. And in being 50-50, in, in having half of you being pushed by your doubts, the other half of you being pushed by your faith, it is a struggle to be authentic. I mean, I'll go... I'll sit at home, I'll wake up in the morning on my day off, and I'll start thinking about the episode I'm going to do that day or the interview I'm going to have, and I'll start thinking about the tough questions that that I'm thinking about in relationship to the topic, but also thinking about the tough questions that you would want to have answered with the person that I'm talking to. And so as I'm thinking about all those things, I, I, for instance, I'll just give an example. I interviewed Brian Haglid, Haglid uh, a couple weeks ago, and that interview will show up in a few months. And I interviewed him about the book of Abraham. And the book of Abraham for me is a really difficult issue. When you really sit down and say, okay, I'm scared to death to probe into this issue, but let's go do it. Let's jump in. And you begin reading all the different perspectives, the different problems that the critics find, the different answers that the apologists throw out. And as you sort through it all, you just realize that it is such a giant mess and that, and that unless you want to take the weaker answer, on many of the issues of the book Abraham, on a surface level at least, you have to just kind of say, look, this doesn't fit. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. And so as I'm preparing to talk about issues like the book of Abraham with various scholars and authors and experts that I interview on these these topics, but using Brian Hoglet as an example, you have this conversation. You just realize that as you're having this discussion that, that man, why does the church have to be this messy, right? I mean, I want to have faith that the church is true. And yet, to make that work, I have got to find a loophole here and there. I have to to make things take on the weaker answer in this case. It it is just a struggle. And in that struggle to be authentic, I'm back and forth, right? I'll have days where I'm like, "Man, the church is not true. I got to get out of this. I'm just wasting my time and my energy. I have to get out." And then I'll go out with my wife with the missionaries and visit with a family, and in that home, I'm bearing testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the restored church as his authorized institution to administer saving ordinances. And I feel like a hypocrite because one day half of me is leading out front and the next day the other half of me is leading out front. And in the moment, I don't feel fake. In the moment, it feels real and sincere. But then I get back to my home and I sit down and I think and I'll have a day where I struggle again. 
And then I think, how did I go into that person's home and bear testimony of something that I just absolutely at this very moment am unsure of that I don't know? And I, and I get frustrated with the narrative of the church because I was taught a specific narrative. I was told a certain story. And now that story has completely changed to the point where when I step back and look at it, it's not the same story. So many pieces and parts have changed. It's like taking, I remember a guy, comedian did a stand-up show for Ronald Reagan and he picked up this axe and he says, this is George Washington's original axe with the exception that the handle has been replaced and the blade. You know, you could take George Washington's axe and one week you can replace the handle and then six months later you can replace the, the blade and you can still say that that's George Washington's axe, but in reality, neither part belonged to him. It's not the same thing. And I feel like apologists do this with the church's narrative. So many pieces and parts of the narrative have changed. It's not the same story. And you go to church, right? And you feel like you're the only one whose eyes are open and you see that the story has changed. No one else seems to have caught on to that. Members of my ward have seen the news stories on the polygamy essay. Nobody, as far as I know, is bothered to actually read the essays. So they, but they read these articles and they assume, oh, okay, here's some details. But they never really take those details and internalize them and say, okay, how does this change my assumptions? How does this change my expectations? How does this change the narrative? I feel like I'm the only one with my eyes open. Let me, uh, let me throw a plug in here. If you're not friends with me on Facebook and it crosses your mind that you'd like to be, please do. Please uh, find me. Just type in Bill Real and you'll see a picture of me and my family, the one I use on the podcast. Um, please just uh, like me on Facebook or friend me and I'll friend you back. If you want, you can also uh, like the podcast uh, Facebook page, which is Mormon Discussion Leading with Faith. And you shouldn't have a, you shouldn't have a problem finding it. If you do, just email me at realmormon at gmail.com and uh, be happy to just shoot you the links for my personal page and for the the podcast page. If you do like the podcast page, you'll get updates of new episodes when they come out there, as well as if you are, are a friend on my page, you'll get those as well. But the reason I, I say that is that recently on my Facebook page, I, I shared a video. It's a video off of YouTube. And the video shows various people from various faiths, some of them Christian, some of them break-offs of the LDS church, some of them non-Christian, some of them cults of groups of people who ended up committing mass suicides. And you have this hodgepodge of religious people who share that because of their emotional experiences, because of their burning in the bosom, they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that their religious beliefs are true. Again, some of these are Christian, some of these are Muslim, some of these are members of Heaven's Gate and other cults. If you remember Heaven's Gate, they're a group of people who ended up committing a mass suicide because they believed that their leader, a prophet, was an alien who came back to Earth and they were to be picked up by the mothership. And so they all killed themselves in preparation for that. And yet here they all are, whether Christian, non-Christian, cult member, they have these firm testimonies because of the spiritual experiences that they've had. It just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't fit to trust those, to trust those spiritual experiences completely. And yet again, most members of the church, that's where they're at. I also saw an article this week on, uh, online that was by some former members of the church. 
and I know you've probably all heard of the CES letter. It's, it's, it's similar to that, but very different. It lays out the questions. It lays out some problems, but I really felt like it did so in love. And I want to share some of this, not because I want to make an effort to badmouth the church, not because I want to, I want to be negative, but rather because I want to be authentic and I want not only the listener, but I just want people generally to listen to what I have to say. I want people to, to hear me as a human being who's having a hard time. I want to be respected for the fact that I put in my due diligence and I've read a ton. I want to be respected for the fact that even though I'm struggling with the church, that my viewpoints are valid, that the questions I raise are valid. Let me share some of this. I'll just read some of these. The church has now acknowledged that Joseph really didn't have the plates present or use the special Urim and Thummim as we were taught for translation of the Book of Mormon that we have today. Why did all the approved works and pictures in the lesson manuals and all the meeting house libraries, temple visitor centers, historical site visitor centers, etc. depict this all-important foundational teaching falsely? When I first heard about this peepstone in the hat method on PBS, I tossed it aside quickly because it didn't come from a church-approved source, and it certainly wasn't faith-promoting. Why have our priesthood leaders, including prophets, seers, and revelators in a variety of ways, taught us that these kinds of faith-destroying claims were lies perpetuated by those who are trying to attack the church, only now to acknowledge them as the truth? Why did they excommunicate people in the past who brought these truths up? Now, I, I should add here that I've never seen a prophet or an apostle tell me that any alternative information online was dishonest or a lie. That said, leaders do tend to try and word things in a way that caution members that any f- information that disturbs their testimony is likely not factual. And the church has even done that recently, even in the midst of releasing these essays. And And I feel like in some ways the church doesn't get it. The nitty gritty details are the issue. The context that the critic puts them in, the conclusions that the critic draws, those are secondary. The actual problem for most of us is the facts. The fact that Joseph translated with a stone and a hat and that the church didn't want to share that story with us. They didn't want us to have that as part of our narrative. They wanted us to picture Joseph using a Urim and Thummim, the Nephite interpreters, rather. That bothers me. It doesn't bother me that when the critic talks about polygamy, they make lots of sexual allegations against Joseph. That isn't the issue. It's the issue that Joseph did practice polyandry and married young brides and married some of these women, Fanny Elgar and others, without his wife's knowledge or permission. And those are the facts. And those bother me. It's it's not the context that the critic puts it in. It's the fact that there are difficult issues that the church didn't trust me enough, didn't think I was mature enough to handle, and so they kept it as much out of my sight as they could. Now, some people don't like the idea that we say the church hid information. And I don't know that that's a fair phrase to use. But I will absolutely, no ifs, ands, or buts, say the church preferred that information not to be available to me as much as possible. They they were comfortable not talking about it and keeping it as hard to find as they could without actually hiding it. And and that sounds like an accusation, but that's that's my struggle. I need that validated. I need people to understand that it really feels like 
there's 15 to 20 facts that the church has released in the last two or three years that the average member didn't know because the average member didn't even know that these kinds of issues existed. They didn't know where to find them. And the church certainly wasn't talking about them in some of those cases. And in the others talked about them very, very little and talked about them in a very surface way. For instance, when you look at the church's conversation about Joseph's treasure digging, for instance, the Church History in the Fullness of Times Institute Manual, as well as in Joseph Smith's history where he talks about making $14 a month doing it, it's only a little blurb. It doesn't even begin to give you the depth of what's going on and the, the magical and occultic practices that the Smith family are doing. It, it just glosses over it. Just enough to say, hey, we did tell you about it, but not enough to cause any member to really want to think more deeply about it and just to assume it's just this simple little fact that fits really nice and we'll just move on. The article continues. It says, why would God and the ancient prophets go to so much effort to preserve the plates when they weren't used by Joseph Smith to translate the book? Extract the metal, hammer it out, inscribe upon it, go to all lengths to heft around and preserve the records from one generation to another to be saved up into the hill with the important interpreters so that the person translating would be in possession of the specially prepared way that God gave for the ability to translate them into English, only to not need to be used after all for the entire Book of Mormon that we have today. And that is, it's, and I get it, right? The, the apologist will tell you that the plates and the interpreters and the fact that they were hidden in a box, it was an important keystone for the witnesses of the restoration. It was something for them to place their testimony in. And I get it. And I'm not saying that's a horrible answer, but man, it just doesn't seem like the best explanation. And that's my struggle at times with apologetics is that we're often just trying to find that little plausible possible loophole. And and oftentimes the, the answers we give to these tough issues, the critic probably has the more logical, the more the more common sense answer to the problem. And then we have to rush in as defenders of the faith and come up with this secondary explanation that could also be valid if you just look at it from this angle. The article continues. Why does it change the story dramatically now that we know Joseph used the same brown egg-shaped rock, a little bigger than a chicken egg, to translate this rock that he found on his neighbor's property in 1822? This was the same rock that he had been using to defraud many people for many years, telling them that he could help them find hidden treasures underground for money. And with the same head-in-the-hat method in which those he took the money from never found the treasure he told them they would find. Why are his stories considered trustworthy when he continued to do this year after year, victim after victim? Again, I'll stop here. I'm reading an article. I don't necessarily agree with every way that they pose these questions. I am not comfortable saying several parts of what was just said here. I'm not comfortable saying that Joseph sought after people to do treasure digging. From my understanding, Josiah Stoll sought him out. I'm also not comfortable saying Joseph defrauded person after person. We have one trial where Joseph is accused by Josiah Stoll's nephew of glass looking, but Josiah Stoll testifies on Joseph's behalf. So I'm not comfortable saying that he's defrauding someone and, and they're on to him and they're, they're filing a lawsuit. This is a, this is a secondary person who's filing the lawsuit on behalf of someone else. And that other person then testifies on behalf of Joseph. So it's, it's way messy, but here's the issue by the church, not sharing the story with me fully. I am only left with the assumption that the church chose not to share the full story with me because there's something there that is damaging 
to the story of Mormonism. Because the church has no problem telling you at great length all the details of Joseph's leg surgery or of Hiram being poisoned by calomel. But the church just glosses over treasure digging. And by them glossing over it, I feel like, wait a minute, why won't they tell me the full story? Something must be going on here. And so when you read the details from the critic, because that's really the only place you can get the treasure digging story, by reading the details of treasure digging... And, and making the assumption that the church is trying to hide information from you, the next jump you make is to side with the critic and to say, oh, this is why the church doesn't want me knowing these things. And so I, I, I don't agree with the way they phrase this paragraph in the article, but I also completely validate why they've decided to take that side of the story. Because the church never trusted them or me or you enough to give us the full details of Joseph's Treasure digging, his glass looking, his being a town lost item finder. We just don't learn any of those from the church. Other than the vague, very surface, very simple one sentence or two sentence description of this time in Joseph's life. It says, why is it, this article continues, says, why is it acceptable that Joseph Smith was lying about his other wives for a decade, including lying to the public, the church, and his dear wife, Emma? Would you just chalk it up to the weakness of men? If we found out that over the past 10 years it was proven that Thomas S. Monson had been practicing polygamy in secret, and when confronted about it, he had lied to the entire church, the public, and his wife on multiple occasions, how would you think and feel if it was proven that God's prophet was behind the illegal attempts to silence any who would expose his fraud? If that were your reality right now, and you knew that he had a background of taking money from people deceitfully, could you call him a prophet anyway? Really taking the time to stop and think about it, what do you think your level of trust or belief would be? If that came to light about him, would you just say, God must be using him in some bizarre and strange way? What would he have to do that you would get to the point of saying, what if he really isn't what we have up to this point thought he was? And I think that's a fair question. I think we're not allowed to ask critical questions. We're going to find out. See, I, I take a risk in saying all of this. Because as long as I'm leading with faith, all is good and dandy. But let's be honest, right? You have bad days and good days. Am I allowed to share the questions I have and the thoughts I'm thinking on my bad days? The article continues. It says, upon close examination regarding the first vision, there are not just a few minor points of change in his story, but rather some incredibly important ones, along with flat out contradiction. In Joseph Smith's first handwritten testimony in 1820, the first vision written account from 1832... About two years after he had started the church, he states that he already knew all the other churches were false before he prayed. Quote, By searching the scriptures, I found that mankind did not come into, the, did not come unto the Lord, but that they had apostatized from the true and living faith, and there was no society or denomination that built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet, in the official story written years later by a scribe, Joseph is quoted as saying, I asked the personages who stood above me in the light, which of all the sects was right? For at this time it had never entered my heart that all were wrong in which I should join. Now, I've heard Stephen Harper explain this, that Joseph's heart and mind were at two different places. And I, and I can somewhat agree with that. So again, I'm not totally agreeing with the way this article is written. But I do think it's fair to say that there are some what appear to be contradictions in the first vision accounts. On one hand, Joseph wants to know which religious sect is true because it had never entered into his heart that all were wrong. On the other hand, another account, he says that he had come to the conclusion that all were wrong and had apostatized and there was no true faith on the earth. Again, 
we almost have to take this secondary explanation as being the accurate one, this, this weaker argument, rather than what appears to be the, the strongest conclusion, which is that Joseph is very much contradicting himself. I wanna, I wanna skip ahead. I'll, I'll link this article, and I will, I don't usually do this. I don't usually link negative things. But this article very much shares not the way I would word things, nor would I find all the issues they do. But there's several parts of this article where I just feel what they felt. The article continues. It says, during this process of discovery, essentially is what they're talking about, during this process we discovered a new word that we had never heard of, polyandry. Why did Joseph approach and secretively marry at least 11 other men's wives who were not virgins? Talking about virgins because section 132 makes the case that that is the way in which polygamy was to be practiced. It was to be with other, with virgins who were not married or not been with another man. And the Book of Mormon uses the justification that if God were to command it at, at a time, it would be to raise up seed unto himself. So we ask ourselves, this person says, why did Joseph approach and secretively marry at least 11 other men's wives who were not virgins while their husbands were alive? Do you think that God would really threaten to kill Joseph by an angel with a flaming sword if he did not propose to them to be his wife? What are the doctrinal, scriptural, moral, and ethical problems with polyandry? Does polyandry fit anything that Joseph claimed to have received revelation for? In addition to the acknowledgments that most of the leaders of the church were doing it secretively and going against the canonized scriptures, what were the laws of polygamy that were set forth in section 132? Were all of Joseph's polygam, poly, I'm sorry, were all of Joseph's polyandrous wives virgins and did Emma give her consent? Taking the time to really let this marinate, are we supposed to buy hook, line, and sinker that it is perfectly normal to believe that God gave a revelation that could be summed up like this? The only polygamy that is acceptable to God is a union with a virgin after first giving the opportunity to the first wife to consent to the marriage. If the first wife doesn't consent, the husband is exempt and may still take an additional wife. But the first wife must at least have the opportunity to consent. In case the first wife doesn't consent, she will be destroyed. Also, the new wife must be a virgin before the marriage and be completely monogamous after the marriage, or she will be destroyed. Should we be afraid to question this kind of revelation? Now, revisit polyandry. Joseph proposing to and marrying other living men's wives. In your mind for a moment. Doesn't this seem like it could be something besides revelation? Why are prophets flat out wrong and completely contradict each other about eternal doctrines, even when speaking for God to us, the regular people who are supposed to believe and follow what they tell us? Example, blood atonement, the Adam is God, the eternal father doctrine, the curse of Cain, the racial ban, polygamy, etc. Why are they still doing it? Now, I'll stop here. Again, I wouldn't say it quite that way. But I will say this. I find it perplexing that the church at times claims that God is speaking on the minutest details of some peripheral issue that's barely on the fringe of even relating to doctrine, and then on major issues that hurt, that that offend, that do damage to others, the church acknowledges that it was wrong and, and God was silent on the matter for way too many years. It, it just perplexes me that God cares enough about the little things, but seems uninclined to talk to the church about the big things, to allow Brigham Young to teach blood atonement, to allow him to teach the Adam God doctrine, and then to have Spencer W. Kimball absolutely refute the doctrine as false. 
one of them is right and one of them is wrong. Both of them claim to be speaking for God in making those statements. They're being absolutist in the way in which they're teaching and, and testifying of those ideas. And yet on issues like the race theories, we have people being marginalized and ostracized and being seen as second-class members of the church for a long, long time. And the reasoning given for those, we taught as being God-given doctrine. And now we look back and say, oh, sorry about that. We got that wrong. God actually never spoke on the issue. We just thought he did. And so we just kept perpetuating it. It just seems silly. And then on the other hand to say, you know, I have a testimony because I feel it in every fiber of my being. And then to realize that lots of people from various walks of life, various religious faiths, some positive and some extremely negative, hurtful, offensive, marginalizing and damaging both physically and temporally to others, that there's people in those that receive those kinds of answers as well. Let me begin to kind of turn towards the end of this article and just share a couple other thoughts. In late 2013, church historian Elder Stephen Snow admitted that the church leaders have suppressed information about church history. He said, quote, I think in the past there was a tendency to keep a lot of the records closed, or at least not give access to information, but the world has changed in the last generation. With the access to information on the Internet, we can't continue that pattern. I think we need to continue to be more open. This was a Truth in Church History excerpts from the Religious Educators Q&A with Elder Snow. According to the prophets, the faith must stand or fall on the story of Joseph Smith. If Joseph was a deceiver who willfully attempted to mislead people, then he should be exposed. His claims should be refuted and his doctrines shown to be false. President Joseph Fielding Smith. So on one hand, you have a prophet, seer, and revelator telling you that if Joseph is a false prophet, he should be exposed, his claims should be refuted, and his doctrines shown to be false. And then on the other hand, you have the church preferring to store away the information because for one reason or another, it is hesitant to have its members generally be aware of it. That's the struggle, guys. That's why I'm frustrated. It's not the information. I knew the information, most of it. I would say 90% of the the issues brought up against the church I had heard, learned of, and read about between the ages of 17 and 19. My issue is with the church narrative that we wanted to teach, that we wanted general membership to know and to be familiar with and to have as the foundation of the story within their testimony. Now, this article, again, was written by two people who were faithful members of the church who ended up leaving. They really grab what I feel towards the end of their article. They say this. They say, After all these years of faithful service, faith, and dedication, and believing it all happened the way that we had been told it happened by the leaders that will never lead us astray, are we supposed to all of a sudden believe that it happened differently in bizarre ways and methods that don't feel right? Translation doesn't mean translation after all. Horses aren't really horses. They are most likely tapers. Chariots aren't really chariots because there really weren't wheels in America at the time. Heavenly Father and Jesus really are separate, but they really are the same physical being. Marriage isn't really considered real marriage. Steel is not real steel. Gold plates really weren't used. A belief in second sight and magic is perfectly okay. Prophets really can lead people astray. You just have to know when they are speaking as a man or a prophet from the same pulpit in the same setting, or when they are receiving a revelation from themselves or from Satan. Priesthood authority really wasn't needed to see God or start his church. 
It's okay if stories from Joseph's own life are all over the place in the most correct translated scripture. We're not going to judge him for being caught in a lie after lie. The book of Abraham is not that big of a deal because it's only about 1% of scripture anyway. And then this, these, this couple says this. They said, they said, we have been all in for so long and so entrenched that we never imagined in our wildest dreams that our testimonies could change. But with this newfound knowledge of things that are verified as the actual truth, our integrity is screaming at us. We can't do this in all honesty. We can't pretend that these things don't shatter our ability to believe it. This is nothing like we have been told and what we have been teaching, and it doesn't pass the gut check. Towards the end, they say this. They say, are we really supposed to just change everything we believed in and trade it for stuff? Trade it for this stuff? Then wait until we're dead to get answers that make any sense at all? We can have faith and hope in something that there is not much evidence for. But it is an entirely different thing to have the same kind of faith and hope when there are major evidences flat out against it. These are not lies like we had previously been led to believe. These are truths that contradict in very large ways the church's claims. At this point, we would have to accept mental unhealthiness, a lack of integrity, and a high level of cognitive dissonance to continue on claiming that the church is the only true church upon the face of the earth. We have only touched on a handful of the sincere questions. There are many, not just one or two here or there. We are talking about dozens that undermine the most important and fundamental truth claims that the church makes. Keeping a respect for all that it gave to us to have faith in the church after all the truths we have learned of, it would require us to deny integrity. Purely and simply, we love the truth, have courage, and care deeply about integrity. That is why we left. We want our children to move forward in life with mentally healthy identities and with clear and concise concern with concern in the truth as their standard and not be required to believe anything that gets told to them without it passing inspection in the gut check. So this is this couple who, who end up leaving the church. And, and these are the things they thought about. These are the questions they had. And these are the feelings they felt. And I've had many of these same questions myself. And I don't have answers to all the questions that they ask. At least I realize that even the ones I do have answers on, sometimes those answers are not the most logical or the best answer. And so it becomes really tough some days to, to make it work. And to, uh, to lead with faith. So this time I need your help. I'm hoping, if you remember, I had a episode on patriarchal blessings maybe a year ago or so. And I was really surprised by the number of you that wrote into the, to my email and shared with me some thoughts. But I, I just want to kind of finish up and share just a few other ideas. One is that we don't have a lot of people to talk to. We don't have a lot of people that we can share our thoughts with, that we can share our doubts with openly. And not just have someone kind of marginalize us as we do it. I have lots of people who just try to combat any question I have with a really simple answer that doesn't fit. That's their easy way to kind of just walk away from the the conversation. But I need someone to talk to. I need people who can help. And here's the other thing too, right? I mean, you listen to this podcast and I started doing this podcast for this reason. I wanted to get experts, scholars, authors on and have them open up my mind to how we fix these issues intellectually. Because again, I'm, I know somebody else is going to be saying, you can't fix them intellectually. You have to fix them with revelation and with spiritual answers. But see, that's the problem. Lots of people get spiritual answers that they trust to be God's truth. And often that doesn't turn out to be completely accurate. So simple spiritual answers are insufficient. Unless one has spoken face-to-face with an angel, or one has had a divine experience so divine... So absolute that it just is unquestioning. 
unquestion, it's an unquestionable experience. Without that, a spiritual answer, a burning of the bosom, a tingling up the spine, a feeling really good, feeling like it's right, the fruits of the spirit are not the end all be all because, because lots of people in various faiths, even in religious belief systems that do great harm and damage, they feel those feelings. So I started the podcast to be able to have authors and scholars and experts on so that I could ask them the tough questions and they could fix me. They could, they could solve my questions. They could resolve my concerns and I could go back to that pristine view that I held some years ago. But here's what happened. Some of that did occur. There are people who help me to see that I am allowed to see the scriptures figuratively or allegorical. I've had people who have showed me that I can choose a local or global flood, although both have severe problems. They showed me that many of the aspects of the narrative I have set up in the church, that in spite of that narrative, there are other ways to see the gospel that things fit much better in. For that, I'm thankful. But I also discovered a second thing. And I want, and I I say this in a way to hopefully just be frank and honest with you. I think sometimes you turn into this podcast thinking I've got it figured out. And if you can just hold on to my light, you'll be fine. But see, that's the problem. I'm no different than you. Terrell Givens is no different than you. Richard Bushman is no different than you. Brian Haglid, David Bakavoy, Adam Miller, all of these guys are no different than you and me in that they are also in the journey. They also seem not to have any certainty. They also realize that the problems are messy and they're staying in hoping for the best because they also have had some other experiences that bind them to the gospel. Again, they're 50-50. Maybe the percentage is different. Maybe Terrell Givens is 80-20. Maybe Richard Bushman's 70-30. Maybe Adam Miller's 40-60. I don't know. But they are struggling to make sense of it just like you and me. And so we sometimes say, well, come on, there's all these smart people out there and they're still in the church and they're still believing. Yeah, but they're no different than you and me. They're plugging ahead. They're leading with faith. They're trying to make it work, but they have unresolved questions. They have unresolved concerns. Richard Bushman on page 75 of Rough Stone Rolling intimates that based on the historical scholarship that we have, there is a good chance that Joseph made up the priesthood ordination by Peter, James, and John and inserted it into the historical narrative after the fact. Bushman says, quote, The late appearance of these accounts raises the possibility of later fabrication. Rough Stone Rolling, page 75. The narrative is so different. You and I were full go in the church and our testimonies were sure. But our testimonies were not only based on spiritual experiences, they were based on a story. They were based on this beautiful story of the restoration. And like these two people who have left the church, you and me have had to completely take apart that narrative and put it back together. And we put it back together in a way that it may work, it may be sufficient, but man, is it not as structurally pristine and sound as what we thought that first narrative was. Everything has changed. Everything has changed. And and I feel like had the church just shared with me the real story somewhere along the way, much earlier than it did, I would have found a way to make it work way better than I am right now. Now, I'll say this. Where I'm at today, I wouldn't trade for the world. It is beautiful. In some ways, it is beautiful. It's also tragic and sad 
and full of conflict and contradiction. But it's also, in many ways, it is beautiful. It is deeper. It is more well-rounded. It is more informed. It gravitates towards more truth. But the church didn't share the story with us. And that's frustrating to the church. I need you to own the narrative. I need you to, one, I need you to acknowledge that you told a story that wasn't accurate, that you chose and accept responsibility for it, that you chose to share a narrative that doesn't hold up to historical scholarship. And that in some ways, at the very minimum, in some ways, you intentionally wanted that narrative to be seen by the general membership as this pristine, pretty, perfect, fitting little thing. So I need you to own that. Two, I need you to own the current narrative. I need you to say, look, we've got some issues. We've got some problems. We can totally understand why some people lose faith. We should not demonize them. We can totally understand why some people struggle with prophets, seers, and revelators because we painted a picture of what prophet, seer, and revelator meant. And in reality, it's a, it's a lot messier than we told you. I still have a testimony of prophets, seers, and revelators, but how I define prophet, seer, and revelator is much, much different today than it was when I was 18 years old and fresh in the church. And it's not because I learned from what was said at General Conference, but rather from learning the deeper history that the church didn't share with me about the foibles and weaknesses of those leaders. To the church, please, own it. Stop making the person who's discovering this information and struggling appear to be the person who is misled. Validate the fact that that individual is more aware, more informed, and likely has a greater portion of temporal truth than members who have not read or looked into those things at all. To the listeners, I don't have it figured out. I'm still trying. I'm leading with faith. Next week, episode, next week's episode will be released, and it will be right back to plugging away and being positive and trying to make things fit and work. Bear with me. I've had a really bad two weeks. I've had almost $1,400 of my money taken. I have had to come to grips with the fact that on some of the questions I have, leaders in the church simply want to avoid trying to answer the question. I've had to come to grips with the fact that in my ward, people simply don't care about the facts. They'd much rather hold on to their assumptions and their perception. And they, and they, and some of them fully acknowledge that they stay away from reading the deeper history because they know it's going to raise problems for them. That to me is sad. And so again, I've got no one to talk to except for you and a few friends that I talk to online or by email. But please feel free. Email me. Share with me your thoughts. The email is realmormon, R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. Also, if you go on the website, mormondiscussionpodcast.org, a couple things. I've got a new bookstore up. The bookstore, I've tried to make a great effort to put books that would be helpful to your faith transition in in that bookstore so that you have access to things that can be helpful to you. I've also put books that have to do with historical issues, uh, books that have to do with social issues in the church, books that have to do with science within Mormonism, and uh, a section on atonement and grace, and then a miscellaneous section. Please check those out. A, a, a small amount of each purchase goes back to the podcast. Also, I tried to make sure that each of these are linked to the least expensive place on Amazon, and Amazon in and of itself tends to be the least expensive place to get these things. And again, you're supporting the podcast. The uh, The second thing is we put out a survey for Mormon Discussion Podcast listeners. It was sent out by email to anybody on the mailing list. If you're not on the mailing list and you want to fill out the survey and give us some feedback of what we're doing right, what we're not doing right, 
how I can improve it, what uh, what you like about the pad podcast, what we can maybe cover topic-wise to better reach what, what you're interested in, uh, please go to mormondiscussionpodcast.org. On the homepage, go down uh, further, maybe three or four sections down. Uh, you'll see at the very top, there's the header. Underneath that is the different uh, pages you can visit. And then below that is the most recent podcast and then all the older ones underneath it. Perhaps the third or fourth one down will be the survey. Uh, please click that. It'll take you right to the survey. Fill that out and uh, let us know what you think. Uh, but it would just be a big, big help to the podcast. Uh, and again, please uh, please consider supporting the podcast financially. Uh, the only way that this podcast keeps going is if people either become premium subscribers or uh, or donate uh, to the podcast to, to keep it alive. I, I hope that nobody was turned off by today's episode. I hope that we're all big enough and grown up enough and mature enough to look these tough issues in the eyes and say, man, is this messy. Man, is this messy. This is way messier than I wanted it to be. But it is what it is. And uh, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. On I participate in a lot of discussion boards. And one of them I participate in is the Reddit, Latter-day Saint Reddit forum. And a, uh, a person there who goes by the name of Mormon Batman has told me on multiple occasions that within four years I'll be out of the church. And uh, I just don't see it happening. I'm here. I'm here for the long run. And and while I'm here for this long run, I'm going to be an advocate for truth. And that truth may be for us to be kinder to the LGBT community. That truth may be for us to sit down with a listening ear to those sisters in the church who struggle with the patriarchal organization. That truth may be to validate that the critic has the better answer on some of these issues. That truth may be to stand up and say sometimes that we goofed up and we got it wrong and to and to use t- to specifically tell you what those wrongs are. And they're my opinion, and maybe sooner or later this will get me in trouble. But like these two people who wrote this article and left, I'm staying, but I've got no choice but to be authentic, to be me, and to value my truth as authentic, as valid. God bless you. May the Lord warm your shoulders. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, and before I close, may I tell you, I do have a testimony of this gospel, in spite of the mess that it is. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Taking out my issues never healed